Good morning. Michael, welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Last week we were in Nehemiah chapter 8, and we were examining the completion of this project that Nehemiah had been given in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had heard that the city was in ruins, the walls were torn down, the temple was defenseless, and so Nehemiah went, and he finished the job. In spite of the intimidation, in spite of the mocking, in spite of the threats, he did exactly what God would have him do. He completed the task. And if you're Nehemiah, you get done with this, this high-pressure, high-stakes job that you're in charge of, and you'd think that he might step back and take a vacation and take some time away, but he does the exact opposite. He gets together with a guy named Ezra, this teacher of the law, this man who is devoted to helping people learn the law and study the law and do the law. And they read the law to the people. And the reason they read the law to the people, the reason Nehemiah doesn't just leave when the walls are completed is because he's concerned about more than just the infrastructure of the city. He's concerned about more than just the walls. He's concerned about more than just the defenses. He's concerned about the people living in the city. He and Ezra both, they want to see revival. They want to see these people become the kind of people they used to be, the kind of people who glorified God, the kind of people who reflected his image, the kind of people that truly appreciated the fact that God had adopted him by his grace to be a part of his family. They wanted to see that again. And the only way that was going to happen was through the reading of the law. So they get together. They read the law. Everyone can hear it. They're in a public place. And the people start mourning and the people start weeping. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites and these other leaders, they go around to the people and say, now, wait a minute. Don't mourn. Don't weep. Don't cry. It's okay. There will be a time for that. But the time is not now. Right now, rejoice. Celebrate. Enjoy everything that God has done for you in the past year. Thank God for everything God has done for you in the past year. So the people do just that. They rejoice. They celebrate. They praise God. However, we talked about the fact that in the same way that these people heard the law and mourn, there come times when we might read scripture and we might mourn and we might weep. And the truth is, as enjoyable, as unenjoyable as that is, the time is there, and there's a time for it. And we're going to see the time for it in the lives of these people in Jerusalem today in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. But before we get into that, will you pray with me, and then we'll jump into our passage. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that convicts us and challenges us, God. And although it might not always be the most pleasant experience to see our flaws, to see our sin, to see how truly hopeless we really are on our own, God, we know how much we need it. God, thank you for the men who saw that this weekend at the Act Like Men conference that we went to, that we were convicted and challenged of where we need to step up as leaders in our homes, leaders in our work, leaders in our church. And God, I pray that By your grace, we won't be completely discouraged, but rather we will be encouraged by the love that you give us, the grace that you show us, the mercy that just pours out of you that we could never, ever deserve. 
God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the ones in the chair underneath you. We'll have verses up on the screen as well. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we get into the text itself, I want to ask a question. And the question is, what do you think of when you hear the word revival? We sang it in one of our songs, and I just talked about it a couple minutes ago. It's what Nehemiah and Ezra want to see happen in Jerusalem. But what do you think of when you hear the word revival? Well, it probably depends on your background. If you're someone who didn't grow up in the church, you probably hear the word revival, and you just picture some doctor rubbing the paddles together and sticking them on somebody's chest and shocking them back to life. Or maybe you picture the scene from the sandlot where uh, Spex drowns in the pool and he has to get CPR, although it's fake, but you get the point. Revival might just be for you something that doctors do or nurses do or lifeguards do to bring people back to life. But then if you grew up in a church background, revival may mean a little bit more to you. You may have positive thoughts of the word revival. You may have come to know Christ and heard the gospel for the first time at some sort of revival meeting, some sort of crusade meeting, and that meeting changed your life forever, and you've never been the same since. But you may also have negative thoughts of revival if you grew up in the church. Maybe you went to a church and saw a revival, and a preacher who seemed a little bit shady seemed as though he was just trying to get people upset and sad and worried and then manipulate them into making some rash decision that they really had no idea what they were getting themselves into. They had no follow-up resources. They had nothing that came next. And then as a result, after a few days of some spiritual high, they fall away. And maybe you look at that and you think that's a little bit ungenuine. You may have positive thoughts of revival. You may have negative thoughts of the word revival. You may not really have any thoughts of all. But I think we can probably all agree that every single one of us probably has some area in life where we think a revival could be useful. And it may not be in the spiritual sense. It may be that you think we need a political revival. We need to have politicians who aren't just caring about getting themselves reelected, but politicians who work together for the betterment of our country. Maybe you think we need a moral revival. You look around at the world around you and you say, you know, when I was a kid, we never would have done that. That never would have been acceptable when I was that age. I never would have said that. I never would have done that. What happened to our moral compass? Things need to change. Well, maybe you're right. However, I do believe that there is a deep, deep, deep need for a spiritual revival everywhere we look. But here's the thing. Revival can only happen out there when revival happens in here and in here. That's what we're going to talk about today. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, we're going to see the first thing that has to happen before revival can take place. Verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Some of your translations may say dust or dirt. That may be a little bit easier to understand. Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. 
And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord, their God. The time for mourning has come. The time for weeping has come. And this mourning and weeping is occurring because the people for so long had abandoned God's law, had abandoned the law that he had given them. And the celebration's over. It's time to see things for how they really are. And look at verse 2. They stand up and they repent and confess their sins, but not just their sins, the sins and iniquities of their fathers. Now, you hear that and you kind of think, now, wait a minute, that seems a little bit unfair. They can't control what their fathers did. Who are they to have to repent for what their fathers did? They're totally different people. They might be different people now. Why would they repent for what their fathers did? They can't be held accountable for that. And there may be some truth to that. However, what you notice with the attitude of these Israelites, they're not concerned with discussing who needs to repent. They're not concerned with finding scapegoats. They're not concerned with making excuses. They're not concerned with trying to discover who went wrong and who dropped the ball. All they know is that we're supposed to be here, and yet we're over here. And that's not okay. Regardless of who did it, regardless of whose fault it is, we need to repent for it. So they do just that. And the first step of their repentance We see in verse 6, they worship God for what he has done. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Verse 15, you gave them bread for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. They go through this history of all that God had done for them, all of these things that God deserves glory for, his role as creator, that he created everything around them, his role in calling Abram, this guy who met no prerequisites, who had no idea what was coming next, and yet God called him and adopted him to be the father of his people, Even though he was imperfect, he did nothing to deserve it. But not only that, when Abraham's people eventually end up in slavery in Egypt, God hears their cry and he reaches down and uses Moses to lead them out of slavery. He parts the Red Sea. Think about that. He parts the Red Sea and these people saw it. Their fathers saw it. Verse 13, God gave them the law. And as we talked about last week, the law was not just some little collection of rules that a few Israelites got together and thought might be a good idea. It wasn't just something that Moses wrote out of his own brilliance. It was something delivered to them directly from God to set them apart 
from the world around them, that they might shine as a city on a hill. Verse 15, God provided for them as they wander. As they're trying to find this promised land, they've heard so much about God takes care of them and watches over them. And this all sounds great. This all sounds amazing. This all sounds wonderful. But there's always a but in there. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. In spite of everything that God had done, in spite of all the wonderful things that these people and their fathers had seen, in spite of all the great history and tradition and heritage, there developed this little bad habit, this little bad pattern This pattern of sin. This pattern where the people would be faithful to God. And then things would start going well. Their eyes would slowly drift away from God. They would get a little bit distracted. And then what? Something tragic would happen. Something horrible would happen. And the people would sit back and say, you know, we never should have abandoned God. We should have seen this coming. We knew that we weren't supposed to do these things, yet we did them anyway. Maybe let's crawl back to God and see if he'll take us back. And so they do just that. And sure enough, God takes them back. God accepts them. Just like the father of the prodigal son accepts his son. But the pattern continues. They come crawling back and they say, oh, God, we've learned our lesson. We're not going to do that again. We're never going to fall away again. We're never going to let our eyes turn away from you again. And then God says, well, okay." And then sure enough, same thing happens. Eyes get led away. People fall away. Tragedy happens. People come crawling back. God accepts them. They say, we're never going to do this again. And then sure enough, pattern continues. And it's all throughout the Old Testament. And it's sad. And you and I may be tempted to look at that and say, man, these Israelites, they sure didn't get it. They're a bunch of idiots. If I got to see what they saw, if I got to see the Red Sea part, if I got to see the pillar and the cloud in the wilderness, if I got to see manna from heaven, if I got to see water come out of a rock... If I got to see Moses come down from a mountain with a law from God, tell you what, if I saw those things and if my father saw those things and my grandfather saw those things and they told me about it, I wouldn't fall away. You kidding me? You're right. I don't get to see those things. That's why I fall away. I don't get that proof the way they had it. They're really messed up. 
Well, the truth is that we're probably a little bit more like the Israelites than we like to give ourselves credit for. What do we do? We turn to God. Things go well. Slowly but surely, it doesn't happen overnight. Our eyes turn away from God just a little bit because of whatever distractions life throws at us, whatever temptations we look at. And then something tragic happens, and we come crawling back to God, and we say, God, we're never going to do that thing again. We're so sorry that we abandoned you. We're so sorry that we rebelled against you, but it's not going to happen again. We mean it this time. I promise. And then the same thing happens. The Israelite story, it's probably our story more than we often realize. Now, the Israelites, we look at these things, And we say, you know, they sure had a lot to repent for. Well, they did. But truthfully, I think we have a lot to repent for ourselves. Whether it's as individuals, whether it's as a church, we have plenty of ways that we have dropped the ball just like they did. And they might not be obvious. They might not be the obvious, stereotypical, oh, cheating, oh, lying, oh, being mean to someone. No, they may be a little bit more hidden. Maybe we need to repent for the fact that we have neighbors and co-workers and classmates who we are around every single day, and yet they would never know that we're followers of Christ. We have people that we see all the time that we know need Christ, and yet we never do anything about it. We have tons of people in neighborhoods within two miles of our front door. And very few of them have ever felt us as a church show them the love of Christ in a tangible way. Maybe we need to repent for that. We say that we have this message that will change people's lives. We say that this gospel is the most important thing that anyone could ever hear, that God is reconciling sinners to himself, not because of anything they did, but purely by his grace. This is so important, and everyone needs to hear it, and yet so many people around us haven't heard it. We have more to repent for than we might realize. Maybe we haven't been the best stewards of our time. Maybe we haven't been the best stewards of our finances. Maybe we haven't been the best stewards of this message that we have been given, the spirit that lives inside of us. We need to repent for that. The same way the Israelites repented for their sins. Now, there may be some of you who are sitting back and saying, well, that certainly wasn't me. I didn't play a role in that. I did my part. It's not my fault that these things happen. It's not my fault that this timeline happened the way it did. Well, if you're thinking that way, you're missing the point of verses 1 through 3. It's not about who did what. It's not about who dropped the ball. It's not about excuses. It's not about, well, I can't be accountable for that. It's about the fact that we're supposed to be here, and yet we're here. Period. And we should mourn over that. We're supposed to be helping our community actively pursue their walk with Christ, and yet often we have dropped the ball. And the first step to revival happening out there is revival happening in here. It's us looking ourselves in the mirror and being honest and being open and saying, you know what? We blew it. We've messed up. We've fallen short. 
We haven't done the thing that we said we were going to do. We haven't done the thing that God would have us do. And we mourn over it. Just like the Israelites did. Look at verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Turn over to chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. We see this covenant that the people all together are joining in on. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Sounds nice, doesn't it? The people see that they've done wrong, they recognize that they've done wrong, and they make a covenant that they're not going to do it anymore, and that this time's going to be different. We mean it. But here's one little problem I see in verses 28 and 29. They enter into a covenant, but they enter into a curse and an oath. Shows a little bit of arrogance on the part of the Israelites in a way. Because in a sense, the Israelites are saying that God, not only are we sure that we're going to get it right this time, but if we mess up, you can punish us. You can really show us what's up. You can really treat us poorly. That's how confident we are that we're not going to fall away this time. This time it's serious. This time it's for real. And God says, well, okay, sure enough, I'm going to hold you to that. I'll hold up my end of the deal. Are you going to hold up yours? And they say, God, I think we've learned our lesson. Of course we're going to hold up our end of the deal. Well, that's a problem. And as nice as it looks, they realize where they messed up. They realize where they fell. They realize where they sinned, and they turn back to it, and they do what we often so like to quote in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. They repent. They say we're tired of the status quo. We're tired of the current state of affairs. and We want to be different, God. We want to change. We don't want this to happen anymore. And that's all well and good. But the curse of that covenant, it remains. And the second they fall short, the second they drop the ball, that curse they entered into, they're going to have to answer for it. You and I have a curse to deal with as well. We are created in God's image. We are created with the expectation that we will honor God as creator, give him the glory that he deserves, give him the praise that is due him, and yet we fall short. Look at Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's the situation we find ourselves in. We rebel against God. We turn our backs to God. Our eyes get pulled away from God as individuals and as a church if we're not careful. So what are we going to do about it? We can repent. We can change our actions. We can strive to be the kind of people and the kind of church that God would have us be. And that's great. But that still doesn't solve the problem of the curse. The curse is still there. Because as soon as we break one little part of the law, we're guilty of breaking all of it. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This is the important part. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We can repent all we want. We can change our actions all we want. We can make covenants all we want, but we still have a curse to deal with. And we can't deal with it, truth be told. But there is someone who can, and that person is Christ. Christ lives the life that we couldn't live and dies the death that we should have died, that we might be reconciled to God. So that the curse does not have the final say. That when we make these covenants and when we fall short, the curse doesn't win. Christ wins. He lived the death, lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we should have died. And thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God that the curse is broken. Thanks be to God that when we fall short as individuals, when we fall short as people, we aren't immediately hopeless because we've looked in ourselves, we've looked in the mirror, and we've realized that, you know what, on my own, I am hopeless. And on my own, I don't have any answers. And on my own, I am messed up. Yet, there's hope for me because Christ took the curse upon himself. Only when we realize these things Only when we realize just how much we truly need God's grace can revival ever happen in here and in here. And then ultimately, hopefully, God willing, out there. Let's focus on these things. Repentance is great. Changing actions is great. Making a covenant with God to be different, all well and good. But ultimately, we'll still have a curse to deal with if we don't keep our eyes on Christ. Only when we do that can revival happen. Look at John chapter 3, 
verse 5. Jesus has a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, and Jesus tells Nicodemus that people need to be born again if they want to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, what in the world does that all mean? That doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. That's impossible. And Jesus answers him in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I pray that every single one of us will not be trusting in our own repentance, will not be trusting in our own works, will not be trusting in our own abilities and skills, but rather we will be continually reborn every day by the Spirit living inside of us. That we will become more like Christ, not through our own efforts, but rather through the Spirit that He has given us for that purpose. I pray that we will throw ourselves at God's mercy more and more every single day. And that we'll realize that when we realize our own hopelessness, when God shows us just how messed up we really are on our own, we won't stay in that state of hopelessness. We won't stay in that state of shame. We won't stay in that state of guilt. But we'll turn to the one who takes away that shame and takes away that guilt and gives us hope. That's when revival occurs. Author Tim Keller writes about revival. Revival occurs as a group of people who, on the whole, think they already know the gospel and they discover they do not really or fully know it. And by embracing the gospel, they cross over into living faith. When this happens in an extensive way, an enormous release of energy occurs. The church stops basing its right standing with God on its ability to act like God. The non-church see this and are attracted by the transformed life of the Christian community as it grows into its calling to be a sign of the kingdom, a beautiful alternative to a human society without Christ. If revival is going to happen out there, it needs to happen in here. The first step is repentance. The first step is humility. And the step that needs to continue happening every single day is our own realization that we need grace more and more than we did the day before. And that we need grace just as much as the person out there needs grace. That's when revival happens. I pray that every single one of us be willing to have that hard look in the mirror, that we'll be willing to look in the mirror as a church and repent and see where we've dropped the ball and be honest with ourselves. That's when revival occurs. We're no longer hopeless. God's not done with you. God's not done with me, and God's not done with this church. If revival is going to happen... Let's see it happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. And God, thank you for the fact that your word makes our weaknesses and makes our flaws so glaring. And it might not be enjoyable, but it's for our good. God, I pray that we will see our flaws for what they are, that we won't look at ourselves with rosy-colored glasses, God, that we will be honest about just how much we need you. And God, I pray that we as a church will truly understand where we've fallen short, 
and what needs to change and where every single one of our hearts need to change. And God, when that happens, we know that your spirit will start a revival in here and that revival won't stay in here. That we can take that revival with us to our jobs, to our schools, to our homes, to Thanksgiving dinners, to Christmas celebrations, to PTA meetings, to staff meetings, to everywhere we go, God. Thank you for your grace. And I pray that we as individuals and we as a church will sell out to the showing of that grace to everyone around us. God, we love you. Thank you for not leaving us hopeless. Thank you for not letting the curse have the final say. Thank you for your grace. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're someone who has tried and tried and tried to break the pattern of sin, and yet you've been unsuccessful, turn to Christ. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room if you'd like to have that conversation with them. If you have something that you need to repent for, they'd be happy to walk you through that and be there for you and put an arm around you and comfort you during that difficult time. If you have questions about our church, talk to one of them as well. If you have a prayer request, they'd be happy to pray for you in any way we can. Just let us know how we can love you and how we can serve you, and we'll do whatever we can to make that happen.